This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 21. This is Writing Excuses. Clear characters. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And I'm an NPC. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Cassandra. I'm Dan. I'm James. Somebody should give me a name. <laughs> no, you're a nameless NPC. So I'm I'm gonna call you Bunny. <laughs> if we name the NPC Bunny, the players will adopt him. True. Who doesn't want to adopt Bunny? <laughs> so when we're talking about interactive fiction, uh, one of the core concepts of that in most cases is that the player is a story. The reader, the audience is a part of the story. And that's where we get to player characters. And so Cass, what do we need to know about player characters in order to write for them? I think James is opening this one. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll jump in on it. Um, So yeah, player characters really applies to games where you have a choice between characters or a choice in how your character develops. That can mean picking a particular character at the start. You know, uh, you don't have a choice in Super Mario Brothers, the original one, because you're Mario. But in later ones, you can be Mario, you can be Luigi, you can be uh, Princess Peach, etc. Or it can be a game like, you know, something like Pathfinder or Dungeons & Dragons, where you're literally building a character from the ground up and choosing how they develop over time. Um, So for me, when I'm thinking about how I want a character to develop in a game or how to build a player character development option, um, I feel like focus is really important. I think uh, it's important to find one or two cool abilities per character type and really lean into them. And that's for a couple of reasons. Um, One, it makes each character unique. You know, you want to have your wizard character be different than your fighter character. Um, And it also gives players a reason to replay the game with a different character um, because they can have a different experience in the story by having a different character. Um, You know, it lets different characters can occupy different roles in a group. Um, It can make it easier, that focus, to uh, choose what you're going to do each turn. If every character can do everything, it can be really intimidating to a new player Whereas if they know that the, uh, you know, the thief's uh, go-to move is to stab somebody in the back, um, then they have a sense of how to play that character. Um, you, you know, you can strengthen the character's theme. Uh, but uh, I'm curious, Cass, how do you think about developing a character? It's very similar to what you said, There, I think, needs to be a very strong sense of narrative resonance. Uh, What you do should also reflect almost a player archetype that might pick the character. So if, let's say, we have a rogue, he should also have like stealth and deception skills, things that allow them to do things that are not necessarily combat-related, but are kind of fun and thematically in line with the character. I personally like games where there are a million little stats for you to kind of tweak and turn and poke around and min-max my favorite thing in the world to do is to make a game master incredibly unhappy with me as I spend 20 minutes stacking seemingly non-related skills together to create a ridiculous power move. Yes, I am a quink. 
But while some players really want those millions of choices, I don't think that is true for everyone. Even if you want to present that option to terrible power gamers like me, there should still need to be a number of clear competitive default choices. Sometimes with like a game, it could be a preset way of establishing stats or just you know general guidance. Yeah, I uh, recently had the experience with uh, a role-playing game on computer that I was so excited to get it. I downloaded it on Steam and I opened it up. And for whatever reason, having to choose my attributes, put actual number points into the different attributes, completely turned me off. Uh, Which is weird because I have played games like this before. But in that instance, something about it... um, was kind of an overwhelming choice. And I thought, I am not ready to deal with this right now. And having the option of, uh, you know, auto creation or random creation, or even just removing the need for it altogether, um, can be really valuable for a lot of players. Yeah, one of the things that uh, Alan and I did with Planet Mercenary, uh, we scrapped the game engine twice in the building process because we realized each time that the stuff we'd been building at the low level was being abstracted up to the next level in a way that the players were making all of their decisions a level up and didn't need those lower level numbers at all. Um, And we actually abstracted clear up to the, you know, skill and proficiency level where everything you do is about well, you choose, you know, do you want to be good at stealing things? Do you want to be good at shooting things? Do you want to be good at talking to people? Well, that's fine. We have character backgrounds and and proficiencies and whatever else, but at no point did you have to look under the covers and see, well, what is my strength? What is my intelligence? What are these numbers? Now, I get that there are people and there are game systems where those numbers are critically important because you can change them later on. Um, That's not the way we built it because we wanted to focus on uh, what the different player types were rather than the physics simulation. So one of the the games that I play on a daily basis is... uh... Habitica, which turns your to-do list into an RPG. I love it very much. And one of the things that I deeply, deeply appreciate about the way they have it structured is that you do not have the option to adjust your um, your, your player attributes until you're a couple of levels in so that you have a chance to understand how the game works so that you can make good decisions. And then you have two choices. You can either go in and tweak them all individually or you can just hit a button that will assign it for you. And and I love that they have thought about the fact that there are two types of players, essentially. There are people who really enjoy sitting there and fiddling with the numbers, and there are people who are like, this is going to stop me from using the thing. Yeah, and on top of that, I would layer the idea that there's there's different kinds of games, and Howard kind of hit on this a little bit, that the the character creation system you're dealing with um, it creates an experience and you can choose what experience you want to give to your players. And so, for example, one of the, the player character systems that I immensely love is Stardew Valley. And 
every choice you make in character creation is purely cosmetic. There are no numbers. There are no stats. There's no attributes. It's just what color do you want your hair to be? Do you like cats or dogs? Like all of these kind of meaningless things. But because those are the choices you make, they become meaningful. And so as you're replaying the game, it's not which powers am I going to have this time? It's, well, which of the townspeople do I want to romance? What kind of person do I want to be romancing them this time? Um, and it's it becomes all about relationships rather than about mm-hmm. um, stats. And it creates a different experience. And so you kind of choose what you want to give to your players. Well, and I think that ties into like one of the reasons why I I really like narrowly themed characters um, is that I feel like it gives you a chance to uh, really play with that character in a, in a different way, right? Where think about um, you know in Portal, the character only really has one ability, or like think about the X Men. You know, uh, the X Men aren't nearly as interesting if Cyclops also has Wolverine's claws and Storm's you know weather abilities. Um, what makes those characters interesting is their limitations and the fact that then if you're telling a Cyclops story, you can explore all the different ways that Cyclops could use his powers, right? Like, you know, oh, he can use his eyes to blast open that door and to make toast and to do a bat signal into the sky to summon the others. You know, you want to give yourself a narrow enough set of abilities that you actually let the players figure out all the interesting uses of that ability. Let's pause here for our game of the week, which is coming from Cass. Uh, The game of the week is A Dark Room. It is an idle game and it opens on a white screen with just one option. It asks you to light a fire. And slowly as time progresses and the fire begins to dwindle, you can stoke the fire. And it sounds very minimalist, but... Time progresses, it just builds and builds and builds. And it's an old game, but I'm not willing to spoil it because it is an amazing experience to discover on your own. All right. Um, I also want to throw out really quick that uh, the reason to constrain your character's abilities uh, aren't just for the player's enjoyment. It's also for you as the writer. Um, <laughs> by constraining your uh, a character's abilities, you leave yourself a lot more freedom to create ca- challenges. Um, you know, one of the first, when I first started working on Dungeons & Dragons, uh, back when I was editing Dungeon Magazine, uh, the first rule they taught me is that as soon as it's possible for any character in the party to fly, magically or otherwise, uh, you have to design your dungeons totally differently. Because suddenly every trap that relies on gravity uh, is potentially broken. And the thing about tabletop is you don't get to select what characters people are going to play. So you don't know if the group is going to run that with a wizard who has levitate or a fighter who doesn't. And so you need to plan for every possibility that any character could have when designing an adventure. And so uh, by limiting what powers people have options uh the option to choose you give yourself a lot more freedom to create interesting challenges yeah when i write uh rpg adventures and scenarios i try to remember uh what i call the three pillars and this is something i learned um from a a writer named lou agresta who works in role-playing games the three pillars of uh of 
kind of game writing are when characters confront a challenge, they should be able to solve it by fighting it, by talking to it, or by sneaking past it. And if I just keep those three simple things in mind, then it helps me remember, oh, we're going to have a lot of different kinds of of players, different kinds of characters. I don't know who is going to be going through this dungeon or talking to this shopkeeper or whoever. And so as long as I have presented entertaining options for all three of those pillars, then every player has something that they love that they can do that will be effective. In the uh, typecast RPG games, uh, the sessions that Dan runs, I'm one of the players. Um, the the previous campaign, I played a bard cleric with high wisdom and high charisma. And in many situations, we ended up with me being the person who knows what probably the wisest course of action is and me being the person who has to communicate that to NPCs because I'm the one who's most likely to succeed in a charisma check. The new game... Um, I have an even higher wisdom. I'm playing a flying magical karate bird because <laughs> I hate monks and hate flying characters. And I'm a bad person. Um, but I have a high wisdom and a really low charisma. And what's changed for me as a player is the realization that, well, I'm, I have great ideas and I, I know perhaps what the wisest course of action here is. But now I have to convince the other players, some of whom are dumb, to communicate that to the NPCs. I've gone from being the face man to being that advisor who sits in the background. And it's all about the limitation of, of, of attributes. It changes the play style completely. Mm-hmm. You've, you've just reminded me of this, um, this game. It was a, it was a, a D&D one-shot. Um, and, uh, this is David Spears again. He set it all up as a, uh, it was a, a Snow White retelling and we had all been assigned characters, but he didn't tell us that we were doing a Snow White retelling. We just all knew that we were, that there were seven of us and that we were all playing dwarves. (laughs) And, (laughs) and each of us had a, um, a tick and, and so you knew what your tick was and you knew what your trigger was. And if the trigger happened, you had to roll, you know, to, to save against it. Um, and mine was that I would attempt to make friends with any sentient creature. Nice. So, and he knew that going in, but what he didn't know was how it was going to manifest, right? So I, we roll in and there are these giant apple trolls and I roll a natural one and I'm just like, and run towards them and he's like didn't see that coming (laughs) and had to completely change everything on the spot because i'm attempting to make friends and sometimes it worked and sometimes it did not very badly (laughs) i love that it it was so much fun somebody else had narcolepsy it was it was ridiculous uh i I was happy uh and then we you know it it Mm -hmm. was it was great but but by giving this very specific constraint, the entire game was so much fun. You know, one other thing I want to throw out is uh, to think about not just 
where characters start, but how they're going to advance. Um, if you're running, one of the great things about role-playing games is that characters can develop over time. And that can mean both in terms of their personality, but also in terms of their mechanics, their attributes, what they're able to do. Um, and so one thing you can do to make your game a lot more addictive is to make sure that players always feel themselves advancing, feel themselves on the mm. cusp of unlocking something new. So maybe as they go on, they get new gear or new abilities as they gain experience. Um, that idea of, oh, I'm almost to the next level will keep people playing, give them something to look forward to. The Diablo series is absolute intravenous crack for this kind of <laughs> carrot method of getting you to, to stick with something because you're constantly on the verge of a new level that'll give you a new power, or you know that you're going to find a new piece of equipment that will give you a new power. It reminds me of my experience with Baldur's Gate 3. Um, I was going to play it with my cousin. We went through one of the earlier builds and we're like, okay, we're going to leave this alone and not touch it until the game releases. But then the developers released the druids. And I think it was at level five, you could turn into a bear. And we basically just spent a weekend just rushing to be a bear. Like that sheer <laughs> joy knowing it was waiting for us. Of course, I didn't spend the entire time as a cat because I found it funny. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I think that it is time for us to end our episode. But James, you have some homework for us. Yeah. So... I want you to go through the character creation process of a role-playing game, any role-playing game on your computer, on your phone, in a tabletop version. Uh, but pay attention to which parts of character creation are fun and also what attracts you to the different classes, creature types, etc. Um, look at your options and the ones that you get excited about, identify why you're excited about that. What makes the different character builds unique and appealing? Cool. That sounds like fun. I uh, am notorious for creating endless characters in role-playing games that I will never play. So <laughs> this is a really fun thing. Anyway, this is Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This has been Writing Excuses. Your hosts for this episode were Cassandra Haw, Mary Robinette Kowal, James L. Sutter, Howard Taylor, and Dan Wells. The episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? 
So join me in supporting Locus. 